Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30 with our students. So I hope that this sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. Man, it's good to see you guys. There's a lot of you guys tonight. And um, yeah, yeah, we're outside thanking the Lord that we get to do this and it's not raining or anything like that. And um, before we begin, I kind of have a challenge for all of you tonight. And the challenge I have for you is as you're listening to the sermon, I want each of you to think of of one question you can take to your small groups. Usually we kind of give those to you guys, but tonight we're going to have you guys bring your own questions. So as you're listening, really wrestle with what I bring forward tonight and think of something to bring to your groups. Over the last couple of weeks, what we've been doing is doing our sermon series this summer in in the book of Acts. This started all the way back at the beginning of the summer with JT, and he talked about Paul and his conversion. Then as we watched Paul, we saw him plant all these different churches throughout the world, and the gospel was started in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And today we're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep looking at Paul as he's planting these churches, and we're going to see how God establishes his church. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19. So for those of you with your Bibles, whether it be a physical copy or on your phone, you can turn to Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20. That's where we're going to be spending our time. Now, last week, we got the pleasure of hearing Daniel preach on Acts 18, and he gave us an encouragement to evangelism, an encouragement to go and share the gospel with others. And tonight, what we're going to be taking our time to look at is the Holy Spirit, and how he acts in the city of Ephesus. So would you read with me Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20, starting in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months Paul spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. 
But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is God's word. Now, it's funny, I was talking to a couple of you guys tonight, and I found that the topic of movies came up on almost every conversation. And it's funny because I wanted to talk about that tonight because I love movies. I've been here for about two months, so if you, you've gotten the chance to know me, you know I nerd out so hard over Lord of the Rings, and Narnia, anything like that. But the one that I thought of when I was going through sermon prep was Star Wars. Man, I love Star Wars, and I know some people like to bag on it. It's corny, but man, there's something so fun about those movies. I remember watching them with my family, my siblings, my dad, and so I, I cherish those movies. And at the center of them, the thing that kind of drives the conflict is this fight between good and evil. And there's a group called the Jedi and a group called the Sith. And they have lightsabers and all these different things that set them apart from others. But the main thing they have is this ability called the Force. And with it, they can move things with their minds. They can even change your own mind with mind tricks or shoot lightning out of their hands. And so I was thinking about that, and I decided to look up what is the definition of the force. And so if you were to look it up today, what you would see is this. The force is a mysterious energy field created by life that binds the galaxy together and is manipulated by force-sensitive characters. And friends, often in the lives of believers, the mistake we make is that we think of the Holy Spirit in this way. We equate him with the force or some mysterious ability that we can tap into if we work hard enough or if we pray the right way, then we can use the power that he has. And if I were to press, if I were to press you today, if I were to get you one-on-one -on -one and ask you about the Holy Spirit, who he is, what he does, and why he does it, the majority of us wouldn't be able to go that deep. And the truth is we neglect this area of our lives. We have this gray area, I'd like to call it, in our knowledge of the Holy Spirit. And friends, we are greatly to be pitied, greatly to be pitied if our posture towards the divine helper that Jesus gave us looks like this. And so tonight, as we're looking at this passage, there are three points I want to give you. For the note takers, I thought I would show grace and give you three easy points. So if you're writing them, here we go. The first one, and all of them actually, are going to be in the form of a question. And so our first point tonight is who is the Holy Spirit? Who is he? Let's turn our attention back to the text, verses 1 and 2. It says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit? And this was where we're introduced to the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't just call him a spirit, 
What does it call him? It says a holy spirit. And this word holy in the Greek, it's term, the term is hagios. And what it means is different or set apart or even sacred. And this term's used throughout scripture to describe one thing, and that is God. Why? Because God is infinitely set apart from all created things. He's set apart by his love and his power and his might. I love the way Isaiah 55 says it. In this, God is speaking, he says this. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we see that God is greater than us. He is holy. And so if we are to call this spirit the Holy Spirit, he must be God. Also, we see that the deity of the Holy Spirit is wrapped up in the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm going to give us a definition of it, because if I don't, I'll spend two hours talking about it. <laughs> I know you guys don't want that. So the, the Trinity, in the Trinity, God externally, he eternally exists, consisting of three persons. You guys know this. We, we know that God consists of three persons, one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God and so completely united that they form one God. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are each of the same nature, the same substance, and yet they're distinct persons. And so if we are to affirm this, one of the core doctrines of Christianity, then we must affirm first that the Holy Spirit is God. So if I were to ask you, who is the Holy Spirit? The answer is he's God. We need to start there. To assert that the Holy Spirit is anything less than God is blasphemy and it's sin. And this is of utter importance in our lives because it's fundamental to who God is. And we don't get to decide who God is. He declares who he is and we have to submit to that. So that's the first thing we see, that the Holy Spirit is God. The second thing we see is the Holy Spirit is a person. And what I mean by that is he has a personality. He possesses intellect. He has emotions, a will, and a personality. And scripture reveals this to us. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So we see that he's searching, and he has an intellect, the ability to reason and understand. The verse following that says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And so the Spirit is the one who comprehends the thoughts of God. He has this knowledge. Romans 8, 27 says, And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit. And so we see the Spirit has a mind. Ephesians 4, 30 gives us the commandment, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And that word grieve denotes emotion and sorrow. And so for you tonight, I would not, my, my biggest fear would be you walk away thinking the Holy Spirit is some inanimate force. And that's so far from the truth. He is a person. And this should be a comfort to our hearts. He's not a mystical force to be manipulated by our actions, but instead he is God and he's a living being that interacts with us, that feels for us. It says in scripture, he intercedes with groanings too deep for us to understand. And we need to take comfort in that truth. Believers have received something so much greater than the force. We've received almighty God and the Holy Spirit. We've received a divine helper. 
So we see that first, the Holy Spirit is God. Second, he's a person. And finally, we see that the Holy Spirit is the seal of the believer. Turn your attention to verse 2, where he asked these men, have you received the Holy Spirit? And so Paul comes to Ephesus. He comes to this city. And as he's interacting with these men, we find out that they're called disciples. And the word disciples was often used in scripture. We think of the, the 12 disciples of Christ. We think of disciples who are followers of Christ. But in this case, what we see is that they're not saved. Even though they're called disciples, they have not yet come to know Jesus. And likely what we see in verses 3 and 4 is it was meant to denote their place as followers of John the Baptist. We see this when they talk about baptism. And so something caused Paul, these men meet each other and they begin to interact, and something caused Paul to question whether or not they were actually saved. We don't know what that was, but we know that he questioned their salvation because he asked them if they have the Holy Spirit. And I think it's, <laughs> this, this kind of happens to us daily. And when I was thinking about this, there, there were a couple of illustrations I thought of. But when you're talking to maybe a family member or a friend, and at the beginning you totally think you're on the same page about whatever the subject is. But then throughout the course of the, the conversation, what you realize is you're, you're just on completely different wavelengths. This would be like if I ran up to Colin, I was like, Colin, 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 guess what? I just heard the coolest song in the world. It's called Photograph, and I love it. And we begin to talk about it. And we're both just oozing over photograph. But then halfway through the conversation, we realize he's talking about photograph by Ed Sheeran, and I'm talking about photograph by Nickelback. Two completely different things. And so we see that Paul's interacting with these disciples, but they're two different kinds of disciples. And so he questions them on if they have the Holy Spirit. And Paul's first question in regards to whether or not these men are saved is, do you have the Holy Spirit? Why is that? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit is the seal of the believer. Later on in his ministry, Paul would send a letter back to this church that he's planting in Ephesus. And in the first chapter of this letter, Ephesians, he says this, In him you also, and he's speaking of Christ, so in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so we see this imagery used of the Holy Spirit that he is the seal of the believer. And this idea of the Holy Spirit being a seal, it tells us three things. First, a seal would signify ownership. And so in the believer, it signifies when we have the Holy Spirit that God owns us, we belong to him. Seals are marks of identification and it's the Holy Spirit who marks us as God's children. Think of a farmer and his cattle. How does he make sure they don't mix with another farmer's? He brands them. In the same way, the Holy Spirit, you can think of it as the brand on the believer. So when you look at me, if you see Holy Spirit, you would know that guy's following Jesus. So that's the first thing. It signifies ownership. Secondly, it signifies security and permanence. Seals were permanent. That means you can't lose it. In Ephesians 4.30, it said, again, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. But then after it says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If we have been sealed for the day of redemption, then we can't lose the Holy Spirit. In fact, we will persevere to that coming day of redemption. 
This is an immense truth that I could spend a long time on. But friends, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ and you truly accept him into your heart and you receive the Holy Spirit, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing in this world, no powers, nothing. And most importantly, not even you. You cannot remove yourself from the love of God. No matter what you do, the Holy Spirit will enable you to persevere. And this should comfort our hearts because life is hard. And times come where we think, how can God love us? And when that time comes, we need to reflect on this truth that the Holy Spirit is the one who seals us. Finally, a seal signifies authority. Wherever This is in the Roman Empire. Wherever the Roman seal went, that meant there was Roman authority in that area. And in the same way with the Holy Spirit on us as believers, we see that God's authority is over us. He is the one who rules our lives. And so we see that the Holy Spirit is the seal of the believer. And if it is the Holy Spirit that marks believers as saved followers of Christ, then only those who have been given the Holy Spirit are saved. Let me say that again. Only people who have received the Holy Spirit are saved. And you say, Alex, that's a pretty, that's a pretty radical statement. You'd be right, but I'm pulling it straight from Scripture. Romans 8, 9 says, Anyone, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Hence Paul's question. If he wanted to know if the men were saved, the first thing he needed to know is if they have the Holy Spirit. A brief moment of application for us today. We often meet people Maybe it's at students, maybe it's at church, maybe it's at school. And if you were to ask them, hey, are you a Christian? They say, yeah, I go to church. I was raised in a Christian family. I even go to students on Wednesday nights. And yet, like the disciples that Paul met, they do not have the Holy Spirit and they are not saved. We can't assume the salvation of such people. And so for you guys today, if you are to interact with someone... And they give you that answer and you look at their life and there's no evidence, there's no fruit. Then I would say, ask the same question Paul does. Ask him, have you received the Holy Spirit? And then follow that up with the gospel, share Christ with them. And even in our own hearts, check yourself and say, man, do I just rely on the fact that I've been coming to church every Sunday for the last five years? Or do I truly know in my heart that I have the Holy Spirit? We need to search ourselves. That's point one. So who is the Holy Spirit? He is God. He is a person and he is the seal of the believer. My second point, what are the works of the Holy Spirit? What does he do? And I want to turn our attention back to the text, starting in verse three. It says this, and he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so the first work of the Holy Spirit that we see is the work of baptism. And in this text, we see three baptisms. The first one we see is John's baptism. And as Paul says, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was meant to prepare people for Christ. It was meant to turn their hearts towards Christ when he came. 
The second baptism we see is baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. And this is the one that the men receive directly after hearing the good news. Jesus Christ is the one that John prepared the way for. And baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus denotes faith in Christ. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality, a public testimony of the faith in Christ. And this last Sunday, if you had the pleasure of being with us, we got to see people get baptized with the baptism that I'm talking about here, the baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus, where they are saved and they are proclaiming to the world, I stand with Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Now, if you're looking at the text, you're probably wondering, Alex, where's the third baptism? I don't see it. I see two, but three is stretching it. Well, the third baptism we see is the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. And when I was studying this, I wanted to be clear with my words. So I'm referencing a quote from the Moody Handbook of Theology, and it describes the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit as follows. It says, that work whereby the Spirit places the believer into union with Christ and with, into union with other Christians in the body of Christ. And friends, this occurs at the moment of salvation. The moment a person believes in Christ, repents of their sins, turns to him and says, I want you as my Lord, the Holy Spirit, it says, baptizes us into union with Christ and into union with our fellow brothers and sisters. This comes from 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so that's the third baptism. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who unifies us with Christ and he unifies us with each other. The second work we see from the Holy Spirit is that of spiritual gifts. And we see this in verse six. It says the following. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. And so these men accept Christ, they get baptized and directly after Paul lays his hands upon these men and likely prays for them. And as he's doing so, it says the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they begin speaking in tongues. That literally means talking in languages they would not know. So they're speaking in many different languages and they're beginning to prophesy and these are sign gifts. And now the, the gift of tongues was a temporary sign gift. This is important. These were a part of the miraculous era of Christ and the apostles. And they served a purpose. And that purpose was to authenticate a message, the message of Christ. At that time, believers didn't have the New Testament to compare these things to. And so to authenticate the message of Paul, to authenticate the message of Christ, God, through the Holy Spirit, enabled sign gifts miraculous things like speaking in tongues and prophecy so people would believe in the name of Jesus. And that's what we see happen here. And again, with prophecy, it likewise was a temporary sign gift. It was used to reveal divine knowledge, the mystery of God's will. But with the completed canon of scripture, we have no need for these things anymore. And so they're non-normative. And so we see that the Holy Spirit works in baptism and spiritual gifts. And next we see in verses eight and 10, eight through 10, he operates through teaching and evangelism. Look with me at uh, verses eight through 10. And it says, and he, being Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in their unbelief, speaking evil of the way, which is just another name for Christianity. So they were speaking evil of Christianity before the congregation. Paul withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him. 
reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so we see that Paul enters the synagogue and he begins to, he begins to evangelize to the Jews and the Greeks that are there. And it says he speaks boldly. And what we know from scripture is that the Holy Spirit is the one who enables this. Immediately when I was studying this, my mind went to Luke chapter 12. It says this, Christ is speaking. And he tells his disciples, when they, being the world, bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And so we see it's the Holy Spirit who is enabling Paul to speak boldly on behalf of Christ. And as a result, many are evangelized too. But then again, we see that these men turn their hearts away from the gospel and that there are some who reject it and begin to speak evil of the way. And so he takes his disciples and he leaves and he goes to the hall of Tyrannus. And we see that Paul begins to teach and the Holy Spirit is also the one who enables this. Paul reasons daily with his disciples for two whole years. And he equipped them with biblical and theological knowledge. This wasn't just a sermon every Sunday. This was every day for hours teaching them about God's word. And the Holy Spirit's the one who enabled Paul to do this. And we know this now, but as a result of these two years of teaching people, the city of Ephesus became the central hub of Christianity in Asia. So much so that the gospel exploded from that city into the, the, the surrounding areas. And that happened because Paul was faithful in teaching for two years. And he set a strong foundation of theological and biblical knowledge in these men. It's so important. And I think our application for this one's pretty clear. And it's this. Ministry takes time. Ministry takes time. Paul taught the disciples of Ephesus for two years. And as a result, the whole city, it says, hears of the gospel. And yet, how often in our own lives do we go and we share the gospel with friends? We share the gospel with family. We talk for about five minutes. They reject us and we say, I tried. I tried. God, what more do you want from me? Guys, ministry takes time. It takes some sweat Pray that the Holy Spirit would enable you to persevere in your ministry. Don't give up after five minutes. The Holy Spirit is more than enough to sustain you in it. Persevere in evangelism. So we see the works of the Holy Spirit. Baptism, sign gifts, teaching and evangelism, and finally miracles. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says this. Oh, I got a page flipped here. Got to go back. There we go. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. When you're studying this, what you realize when they say apron, uh, his aprons and like garments, it literally means the towels he would use to wipe the sweat off his brow while he was at work. So Paul's just wiping the sweat off with these dirty rags, and yet someone would run and pick it up and take it to their family member, their friend, who was deathly ill, and it would heal them. That's a miracle. And we see that it's the Holy Spirit who's giving Paul this power. And like the sign gifts that I was speaking of before, miracles or works of power were given to authenticate a message. And in this case, Paul's healing served to validate his message of the gospel, the good news. And a distinction I think we should make, and it's important to make because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this, is between miracles and the gift of miracles. 
starting with the gift of miracles. The gift of miracles is the ability of an individual, a single person, to perform miraculous acts. And this is what ceased in the apostolic age. No longer do we believe that there are people going around who can just heal everyone they touch. On the other hand, with miracles. While the gift of miracles has ceased, in no way does that mean miracles have ceased. If God wills something to be done, it will be done. Woe be to us to tell God what he can and can't do, amen? And even if there are non-normative gifts and miracles in this world, God still shows up for his people. And I think if you talk to any senior saints, they would tell you very quickly of how God has miraculously entered into their lives and moved. I could tell you the same. It's important to, to, to note, though, he doesn't do it through the medium of a person. We don't believe that. So when the works of God, we see baptism, sign gifts, teaching and evangelism, and miracles. And as we learn about these works of, of the Holy Spirit, we ought to take comfort, truly. We ought to take comfort in the knowledge of our God and the ways that he operates in our lives for our good and for his glory. And I would encourage us, we need to pray that God would use the Holy Spirit to enable our ministry, to enable us in our lives in the same way that he did Paul in Ephesus. This brings me to my third point. So we've talked about who God is, what he does, and now I want to talk about why he does it. So why does God operate? Why does he do it? And this brings us to the story of the sons of Sceva. I just read over it at the very beginning, but in it we see that there's these Jewish exorcists. And what they would do is they would go around and use uh, spells and charms and all kinds of things to cast demons out. And as they're watching Paul do all these miraculous things and cast spirits out, they decide, you know what, we can probably use the name of Jesus to do the same thing. And they kind of view it as something to add to their arsenal. And so they go up to this demon-possessed man, and man, does it backfire. I don't know if I've ever heard of someone getting beat so bad that they ran out of the house screaming naked. It's pretty serious. And it's a miraculous thing. But look, at, look with me at verse 17, because I think this brings us to an answer to our question. It says this, as a result of that occurrence, be, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, the whole thing with the, with the priests and the sons of Sceva. It became known to everyone in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Why does the Holy Spirit operate? He operates so the name of the Lord Jesus would be extolled. The Holy Spirit is in it for God's glory. He is God. Look with me to the next verse at 18. It says, Also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Why does God operate? He operates that the name of Jesus Christ be extolled. And secondly, for the sanctification of believers. The Holy Spirit acts so you look more like Jesus. And this whole thing with the sons of Sceva, as a result, believers and even non-believers were coming and realizing that they were in sin and that they needed to change. So we see the Holy Spirit operates for the sanctification of his saints. Finally, look with me at verse 20. I think this is the capstone of the entire chapter. It says this, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The Holy Spirit works so that the word of the Lord would increase and continue to prevail mightily. 
And like I said before, the Holy Spirit op- he ultimately just operates for the glory of God. And the reason is he is God. So how should we respond? Those are my three points for tonight. But how should we respond to such a wonderful truth about knowing who God is, about what he does and why he does it? I would say this, we need to be, f- we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be people who are seeking to be filled with the Spirit. This comes from Ephesians 5.18. We see the direct commandment. It says, be filled with the Spirit. And how are we going to do that? I have four points for us tonight, and then we'll be done. The first is this. Deepen your understanding of the Holy Spirit. Deepen your understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. If He is God, as I claimed at the beginning of this message, then we must seek to learn about Him so we can honor Him with our lives and not neglect our divine helper. So study God's word, read books of theology, learn about pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, and deepen your understanding. Secondly, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I bring this from Ephesians 4.30. Again, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Believers are warned, we're not to lie. We're not to prolong anger. We're not to be bitter or unforgiving. And we're told that as, if we do these things, if we sin, It will prevent us from being filled with the Spirit of God. And let me be clear, if you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit. And yet how you experience him in your life varies. It varies based on what? How you live your life. If you are living in constant sin, then you are quenching the Holy Spirit. You are not going to experience his power in the same way as someone who is fully walking in God's word. So instead, as believers, we're commanded to pray without ceasing, to be thankful in every circumstance, and to stoke the fire of ministry in our own hearts that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit. My third, my third exhortation would be that we are to walk by the Spirit. This is from Galatians 5.16. It says, walk by the Spirit. And this idea of walking communicates the idea of our entire lives. It's comprehensive. And every piece of your life, make sure you're walking according to the Holy Spirit. And you might say, that's kind of vague. How am I going to do that? This brings me to my next point. Be filled with the fruits of the Spirit. These are the evidences in your life that you are being filled with the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All these things are to be characterizing of our lives. And so I would, my desire for Redeemer students is that we would be a group of people who gets on our knees and prays, God, would you fill me with more of this? Would you fill me with the fruits of the Spirit? that you might be glorified and that I might be able to proclaim your glory to the nations. When I was in high school, I decided to become a lifeguard. I thought that was a good idea. I, I, I was totally broke and I needed money, so I decided to become a lifeguard. And I remember, for those of you that have been lifeguards, you have to go through training. You don't, they don't let any Joe Schmo just get up in the stands. So you have to be trained. But before you even get trained, you have to be tested. You have to be tested on your capabilities of swimming and all this stuff. And so I remember I was pretty young, probably my sophomore year of high school, and I went to this high school pool, and they had us all get in the water, and we had to do a couple of tests to see if we were even had it, were adept enough at swimming that we could be lifeguards. And so I swam most of my life before this. I did competitive swim, so I thought this is going to be so easy, and I'll just get out and be done. We started off with swimming a 300, which is, for those of you that swim, nothing too crazy. And so we swam it. I felt great. I was in the middle of the pack the whole time. So I was like, all right, first test, done. After that, we had to do a brick test. And so you had to swim 50 yards, go down to the bottom of the pool, get a brick, and bring it out. Second test, passed it without a problem. At this point, I thought, you know what? 
I'm pretty much like ready for Baywatch or something. I'm ready to just kill this thing. I'm like the guard. And we get to our third test. And they had all the people there get in the pool and make a big circle in the deep end. We're all sitting there treading water and our instructor comes up and he's like, all right, this is our last test. All you have to do is tread water for two minutes. You kidding me? Two minutes, I can tread water for days. That's what's going through my head and probably the head of everyone else there. And then they say, but there's one catch, there's one catch. Your hands and your elbows have to be out of the water the entire time. You are to tread water for two minutes with your legs only. I was like, okay, and, and we began. So there we all are, kicking our legs, hands out of the water, doing our best. A couple seconds go by, feeling good, but all of a sudden my legs start to get a little fatigued. And all of a sudden, those seconds start to feel longer and longer, and I'm kicking and kicking and kicking, and about 30 seconds in, I'm getting kind of gassed, and it gets worse. Our instructor took that brick that we had to go get, and he hands it to one of us who are trying to kick for our lives, and they said, pass it around the circle. And at this point, a minute and a half turned into a year and a half. We're kicking for our lives, and as we're going, this panic begins to set in. Kids are barely keeping their mouths above the water level, taking in oxygen. <gasps> brick comes around, you go under, kick back up, pass the brick, and all of a sudden, we feel like we're drowning. Boom, whistle blows and we get out. Friends, most of us go through our Christian faith like we're treading water with our hands up. And there's a brick we're holding and we're scrambling and we're kicking, we're kicking my works. They're gonna keep me up. If I just look good enough, if I look like a Christian, I'm gonna stay above the water. I'm gonna keep walking in the faith. And all of a sudden we find that the only option we have is to drown. Why? Because we're not engaging with the Holy Spirit. We're neglecting our helper, just like hands out of the water. It's horrible. And life is too hard for that. It throws things at us that we are not sufficient for. The only thing that's gonna keep us afloat in these times is our divine helper, the Holy Spirit. And in this chapter, we see that it's the Holy Spirit who enables Paul to plant a church there. In our lives, it's gonna be the Holy Spirit who enables us to walk the Christian faith. So my heart for you guys would be that you seek to understand who he is. Get in the word, get in prayer, learn about him, pray that he would operate in your life. I have one last application, it would be this. If you have not received the Holy Spirit, if you are not saved and you do not know Christ as your savior, then tonight, would you humble yourself and repent? Would you repent of your sins, of your pride, of your arrogance, of all the sins in your life and turn to Christ? Jesus Christ is the one who came. He, being God, came down to earth. And we see that he became man, fully God and fully man, and we believe this. And we know that he lived a perfect life without sin that we couldn't. And at the end of that life, he died on a cross bearing the most horrific death known to man. Nails pierced his skin. He was beaten he bled for us, and yet none of that even begins to compare to the wrath he experienced at the hand of his father, where God turned his wrath upon our sin and put it on his own son. And he died. And three days later, we know that Christ rose from the grave as evidence of acceptance of the payment that he had made. He rose 
and show that he was God and he is God. And he appeared to his disciples before ascending to glory. And we believe he's going to come again. And when he does, the world will be judged. Would you cling to Christ? He loves you. Would you cling to him? Would you turn to him today? And would you receive the Holy Spirit, our divine helper? Amen? Let's pray.